You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dispel fear and hesitation. The fire alarm of desire, I want to pull it. Drive the engine through town, down back alleys, up billboard boulevards, past yards where laundry waves crisply on the line. With a bullhorn to my lips, I'll proclaim the moment. All the yeses stored up for another day I'll unleash like dogs calling housewives and plumbers, hairdressers and accountants, children with their bouncy balls, railroad men and miners. Flee whatever closed place locks you in. Come out here, into the heat of the afternoon, the confetti of peach blossoms and dandelion. Floats my name next to yours, your name next to hers, igniting desire throughout the town. Patrice Vecchioni is the author of Writing in the Spiritual Life, Finding Your Voice by Looking Within, and Territory of Wind, a collection of poems. Her new collection of poems is The Knot Untied. Thank you for joining me, Patrice. Happy to be here. Patrice, this is such an interesting collection, and what I realized as I read this was how much, at least what you've put here, reminds me of a combination of novel, of memoir, and of fantasy. All three kind of intertwined in this uh, visionary manner by virtue of the way you write your poetry. As you approach each of these poems, and they seem to kind of fall into different types, do you think, okay, this poem is going to edge towards memoir. This one's going to be a kind of a visionary fantasy or this one's going to be an observation of the particulars. Is that how it works for you? No, not at all. It's, it's, um, I'm as surprised by the poem that comes as someone who reads the poem. Though, of course, by the time someone reads it, it's no longer surprising to me because I've worked it. But when the ideas for the poem, when the words come, I feel like I'm following um, an invisible thread. I'm listening for what the next word is to be, the next phrase, the next sentence. So I really am, I, I write like a reader reads, uh, uncovering each line at a time. It really wasn't until each poem was finished, although all of these were finished, and I went to put the manuscript in order, that I found the novel and the memoir in the poems. This really does feel like um, it has aspects of both of those very solid uh, uh, lines of continuity, and we have characters, we have plots to a certain extent. I'd like you to talk about how long did you take to put together these poems? I mean, how how long is the stretch between the first and the last? Pretty long. My last book came out in 98, which was a long time ago, and then I focused on writing the nonfiction book that you mentioned, Writing in the Spiritual Life, and I did a lot of other things. I wrote a play that I performed and was produced a couple of times and did a lot of anthologies and a lot of teaching. So I was writing the poems and, you know, storing them, collecting them. So really, this is from really probably work from 2000 until a very few months ago. The last poem was written in, gosh, it might have been even early December. You know, when you talked about collecting those poems, I just flashed on this image of like a magpie <laughs> finding you know, all these various yeah. things. And it's like, and this strikes me as being like that. Or also too, um, like a collection of linked short stories. When you were write, when you write, we're writing some of these poems that were kind of further down the line. Would you go back and reread your old poems to Mm-mm. kind of get a feel? No, no, not no. I didn't read them, but I knew the through lines, the through lines in my imagination and, and in my life. And through lines in my imagination are not the same as the through lines in my life, but they run concurrently. 
And so I knew them, go, you know, like in my life, the mother poems. There's a series of mother poems. Mm-hmm. You know, both the glory and the bane of my existence was my mother. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she puts in a fair showing in this book. Um, but uh, no, I didn't look back at the other work. I took each new poem as a new, um, a new adventure, really. Uh, tell us a little bit just about writing any individual poems. I mean, are... Are there different approaches to different kind of poems for you, or do they all just kind of flow off the tip of your pen when you're sitting at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee? Usually it's sort of the feeling of someone tapping on my shoulder, like, hello, (laughs) (laughs) here I am. And sometimes I'll say, I don't really want to do this right now. You know, I've got an appointment in an hour. I've got this going on. I don't want to go into the depths. I like being on the surface. Could I just stay on the surface today, please? And, you know, the poem will knock on my shoulder a few times, and I know if I don't respond, I'll lose the poem. It won't come back. And so I don't ever refuse it when something comes. And other times I'm sitting there just writing in my journal, chronicling my life more or less, and the poem will come through that way. And, of course, then it's much easier to write the poem then because I'm already sitting there writing with the cup of coffee. (laughs) Well, tell us a little bit about writing your journal. This sounds like a critical part of your writing process. And it's interesting because I would presume the form of a journal is diary-like. It's prose. It's kind of every day. It's low stress. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the word stress relating to a journal because for me... I don't keep a regular journal. I don't write daily in it or write daily at all. I write when I write. But it is a stress reliever because writing in the journal allows me to find out what needs to be said, what needs to be attended to in in my own psyche, and what in the world is is bothering me or what in the world is, is inspiring me. And so it's daily, but very quickly it becomes not daily. Very Mm -hmm. quickly it moves into something, you know, I'll take the ordinary. I mean, the way I see this book is it's, I'm finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. That's what this book is about to me. We all live these lives that have the extraordinary in them all over the place, but we don't always stop and attend to that extraordinary whether it's the extraordinary in a glass of water sitting very close to the edge of the table or, you know, my experience of almost getting lost on my way here today and then recovering from being lost. I mean, there's a poem there, how to not get lost, you know, right? Just And if I went to my journal, that might end up becoming a poem. <laughs> well, I hope you'll let me know that. I will, I promise. <laughs> One of the things I think that uh, strikes me so much about the poems in this book is the beauty of the language and the way they're laid out on the page. And I'm wondering how much of that comes to you in the first pass, how and, and how much of the length and the density of the poem you see. Is this something that when you're sitting down to, to, to write, for example, uh, the, the poem you read to us, Dispel All Fear and Hesitation, mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really nice, you know, has a nice presence for a poem on the page. It has, the, I like, love the language. Do you know how that's going to work out when you start to write it, or does it just kind of tell you as you go? You know, a lot of my work in the first draft looks like prose. It doesn't, mm-hmm. I don't line it out in the first draft, except sometimes I'll hear where the end of the line is, and then I'll break the line in that place because it became apparent to me. Um, but it's really not till the final draft that I really make a decision about the line breaks. And in terms of the language, um, this poem has all this alliteration happening in it, and that happened in the first draft. And maybe I added a little bit to it in later drafts, but it often for me, the language of the poem is... Um, uh, inter- interwoven with the content of the poem. Mm-hmm. and But form usually comes mostly later. What, I love the emotions in these poems. They're, they're really so beautiful and varied, and they capture things. What I love about this book is that it captures stuff that's 
in transitory states and in states in between states that are difficult that are difficult to describe. I mean, you capture mm -hmm. us, capture places, capture us between places where we're going, we aren't there, we aren't here, we're not even necessarily going anywhere, but you kind of capture this in-between state. And so I'd like you to talk about how much of that has to do with your emotional state as you're writing the poem and how much of it has to do with the language, how much does the language di dictate the emotion? Mm, that's a great question. You know, E.E. E. Cummings wrote, we think by feeling what is there to know. And that's sort of my dictum. You know, we think by feeling. And that's, that's me. I live in the five senses and I live in my emotional and spiritual place. The rest is all the dross of life, really, um, except for a good bowl of pasta, of course. Um, so for me, the the it's just it's it's when I have a feeling that is niggling at me, it's just it's just like you know pestering me, kind of whether it's a transitory in, in a lot of I live a lot between this state and that state. I want to define it. I want to grab it and I want to be able to look at it. And I love those places that are in between. You know, that's what I was thinking is that this book has a very, I guess, a quantum feel to it. It's, <laughs> these are, you, you get us inside and, and and see all the Schrodinger's cats that are in our hearts. <laughs> that's <laughs> nice. I like that. And I think that's a, that's a difficult thing to do. Now, a lot of this book, um, there are a lot of wonderful, very kind of visionary poems, and that uh, the and I like the way this book is paced. We have five different parts. The book is called "The Knot Untied." We have the the interlacing and interlacing tangle, my Gordian knot, the tie that binds, and the knot untied. And that's a very beautiful kind of progression. And even as readers, just those titles take us through something. As you put this together, did you know about had this kind of theme? I had the title a long time ago, probably shortly after my other book, my first book of poems came out. I had this title, and I made the collage that's on the cover, or ver an earlier version of the collage. Oh, so you did the art, too. I did the, the artwork, oh, yeah. So it, one of the things I, I love about this book, I think, is the design, the printing, the art. It really captures the mood of the poems very well. Well, you know, it was designed by uh, Monterey um, eminent designer Jerry Takigawa, and so I thank him. The design is is his is his workmanship. Um, so I, even though the the image on the the cover, of course, those of you listening can't see that, is a, a woman floating in the sky. She's sort of suspended in the midst of doing a somersault in the sky, and and the, the ocean is below her. That image and the title even though it doesn't directly address the title, were with me, have been with me for 10 years. <laughs> I, well, I don't know why. And the, the arc that you describe of the, the sections, that I worked really hard to get. That wasn't, that wasn't um, apparent. I had, I've had, this, is, this manuscript has been through many renditions before it got to this this order. And once I spent all summer working on this order, once I found it, I knew I had found the book. And the section, the middle section, My Gordian Knot, is really the, the crescendo of the book. That's where things are most complicated and um, unsettling. And then it kind of comes, things settle back down again by the time you get to the end of the book. I mean, at least that was my intention. Uh, and that's the feel, too. Good. <laughs> I'd like you to to read. You know, I'm really I, I really love bees. Oh, you do. I love bees too. <laughs> so uh, I think um, let's see. And you have uh, there's a series of bee poems mm -hmm. through here. So let's let's hear the first bee poem. Let's see. No more hives. And this po poem is dedicated to a beekeeper who is no longer with us. He died a number of years ago. His name was Jim Meyer, and we. Um, we were friends for quite a while. No more hives. No more buzz, Mr. B-Man. No more hives wrapped under your shirt. No more water under your canoe. No more belly laughs. No more sun. 
We had a river, then it was a stream, there was a splish splash. The boat made its way down, and the birds in the air made their way alongside with a dip and a dive. Sunlight cut through cloud. Later we would slice the tart, the apricots dribbling down. That was a past time. It was a, a distant land. The bees in the truck held their buzz like a woman clutching her purse tight to her thigh in the wrong part of town. You were the wrong town, Mr. Bee Man, but you turned the highway into a dirt road that took us all the way and those belly laughs I couldn't live without. I was never yours, you were never mine, but there was that time you had white boxes, you had yellow bees, the tiny waves shiny as jewels stolen from a prince. Your laughter dashed through the air. The bees made the fruit and the sun. I made the tart. We ate the thyme. Thank you. That yeah. is so wonderful. Uh, that, I would say, falls into both the bee poem category, <laughs> but it's also another category. I think that's very interesting that I would call memoir visions. Mm -hmm. That are poems, there are some poems that are very distinctly just memoirs, but this is a little more visionary, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And I like your sense, your, your, visionary, your visionary sensibilities, and I'd like you to talk about turning these kind of emotions into the images and how you um, use, I guess, what might be called elements of the fantastic or these kind of slightly um, exagger exaggerated visions to externalize things that are really difficult to talk about. My favorite novel of all time is A Hundred Years of Solitude, Marquez's book, Garcia Marquez. And when I read that book for the first time, first of many times, I thought, there's something there that I want. Because to me, life is lived on the spiritual plane and the fantastical plane, the dream plane. You know, it was UNESCO, and, and that's not how you say his name, UNESCO. Eh, anyway. UNESCO? Eugene, yeah, is that right? Yeah, I think so. All of a sudden it sounded funny. Eugene UNESCO, okay. Um, he said that the dream is real and that the, the waking is the dream. And I love that, you know, when I read that many years ago. And we, I think that it's, what's more interesting to me is what, what's the ramification of experience? Where does experience resonate inside of us, inside of our minds, inside of our emotions, inside of our spirits, our souls? And if you let yourself, if I let myself trust where the poem is taking me, I go to some other realm where things are connected in a way that they're not connected on the physical plane. And that's one of the things I think that your poetry does really well is to take us kind of out of our bodies and give us the successful out-of-body experience that uh, good writing gives us. Now, I'd like you to, to read one of, the, one of the memoir poems. Um, let's see here. The, the first section is kind of light on memoir poems, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it, 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 well, there's a father poem about my father picking up coins mm -hmm. and, and a poem about my aunt who asks me to cook her something I haven't made in over 20 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, maybe there, there, there are lighter poems in the first section. Right. Um, let's go to uh, something I think that is uh, fairly important, a foretelling. And um, that's on that, page 28. 28. That's your mother. That's, yeah, here she comes. Um, and I am thankful to my friend, the poet Elliot Rukowitz Roberts, for the title of this poem A Foretelling. The day my happy, high heeled mother bent to light the oven for my birthday cake and came up gasping, her hair in flames. I saw the world for what it was. And later, those years when she turned drunk and mean, I remembered. 
Now that poem takes us to, with this kind of a vision that leads to a life, and it also leads to, acts as a key to a lot of what follows. And for you as a memoirist, and I mean, the, the, these poems are seriously a memoir. There's not any slicing or dicing that. I mean, they're poetry and they're beautiful, but it's every bit as much of memoir as what, uh, you know, a, a big prose thing. And I think you do all the heavy lifting of a big prose thing in a much more compact and, I think, uh, interesting way. Though I do lie part. also. Oh, I'm sure you lie. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, mm-hmm. so, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about that because um, as a poet, you, you, you're supposed to. That's your job. Right. That's so, right. Yeah. So talk a little bit about writing poems where you're using I and you're talking about your family, but you're also lying and you're also like giving us a story in poetry, you know, uh, in prose. And if you write a short story, you have certain obligations mm-hmm, right. as a storyteller. If you write a memoir, you have certain obligations as a storyteller, and that's to cleave to the truth. And a story, you don't have to cleave to the truth, but you have to have a story. As a poem poet, you have certain obligations too. And when you're writing poetry that has the uh, ambiance of a memoir, talk about balancing the obligations of the poet with the obligations of the memoirist. That's such, that's very interesting. Um, well, let's look at this poem here, the foretelling. Um, I when when this poem when this happened, and for those of you who don't remember, it used to be that you had to light the oven with a long, hopefully a long match, and that day the oven, the gas had built up in the oven, and and the oven, the, the gas exploded, and my mother's hair caught on fire, and. Um, I didn't have the clarity at um, the age of four to see that, um, to, to actually come to the conclusion that this poem comes to in the first stanza, that I saw the world for what it was. But I knew in that moment that something pivotal had happened and that it had ramifications beyond the physical. Um, it wasn't until I wrote the poem that I realized there was this connection so when I say here that, that at that time, you know, I saw the world for what it was, that's not, that's not factual. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the, the fiction. You know, that's the, the adult looking back and looking for what was the meaning here. But I think that's captured. That's one of the things you do so well. Is that's a, a perfect example of you capturing the quantum state. As a mm-hmm. child, actually did know. You had, I think, yes. as you really did have the full knowledge. But as a child, you didn't have the experience or the language um, to articulate that knowledge. Yes, that's that's right. And I think what's what you do as a poet is go back and give the child the ability to articulate. You use your adult facility with language to give the child the ability to articulate the language and capture that kind of quantum moment in your own life. And so if you just put the facts of an event down in a poem, you won't be able to, a poet will not be able to do that. Sometimes, I have an anthology out that Henry Holt published a number of years ago called Truth and Lies. And in the introduction to that book, I talk about how the facts are only the hard edges of things. And that the truth lies within the facts or behind the facts or beyond the facts that the you know, the facts come in through the front door, the truth comes in through the window. And so, you know, right, right? It's, I like that. Yeah, That's the, great. It's, it comes in the side door. And so how do you, if you want to convey the emotional and spiritual quality of an experience, just using the factual um factual information is not going to it's not going to succeed so I'm looking to how do you get to the inside of what happened I'm not interested in standing on the outside I want to be able to articulate the inside of what happened and to do that you I have to turn facts around and I'm I have to find the language that is on par with the quality of the experience. So you really, I mean, by virtue, anytime we're, we're writing poetry, anytime we're, we're doing 
anything like a novel or, or, or a poem, um, we're really trying to manipulate language. How do you manipulate language to talk about something that's beyond language? That's really what the poem is doing. Because life is not language. It's beyond language. It contains language, but it's so much more than language. So I'm I feel like I'm trying to bend these words and twist them and, you know, throw a little mud on them and break them every now and then in order to, how do you get to the authenticity? What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be an ordinary woman living in the 21st century who wants to chronicle the intimacy of experience? That's, that's what I'm trying to do. You know, and that brings us to another kind of variety of poem that you have in here, uh, what I would call the poems of particulars. Hmm where there are poems where they're just like really close observations of, of something. And I think not necessarily uh, um, memoirs, but uh, and not necessarily visions, but descriptions with some spin, I guess, <laughs> what we would say. And, and as an example of that, uh, there's uh, Bless and uh, Finders Keepers. So I'm wondering... Let's see here. Uh, let's just read Finders Keepers. This is an early, early on. And just talk a little bit about these kind of poems of particulars. Well, my father, um, my father collects coins. And my father is 91 years old now. And he's not the most stable on his feet. And his vision isn't the greatest. But we can be together walking on Pacific Avenue out in front of Bookshop Santa Cruz. And he'll say, hang on a second. And he bends down and he picks up a dime. So he's like a crow. He's a crow of small change. And so what I wanted to do with this is to find, what is my father really doing? And here's the poem, Finders Keepers. Just what can be found with eyes open, $10,000 in coins anyway, enough to fill a few five-gallon jugs. When his friend asked for a loan, Take this, said my father, pointing to a jar full of the small change other men ignore, a kind of faith in the possibility a nickel has. The wristwatch I wear daily, my father found on a park bench. Once, shortly after my mother left, bills were due. Pop was down to soda crackers and cigar butts in line at the liquor store to buy a cigar with his foot he slyly reached for a 50. Most people look in the wrong direction, locating faith above them. Pennies don't fall from heaven. They're down below, near sewer drains, on the asphalt, beside dog droppings and spent matches, worn shoes, even beggars leave behind. It's so wonderful and fun. <laughs> it's uh, fun, huh? Yeah, <laughs> and that's an important aspect of your poetry because a lot of the time you have fun with it. And I think that, that that's not our usual perception of poetry. It's not. You know, I think poets sometimes, sometimes we take ourselves, ourselves too seriously. And when I, when I wrote this and, and came to the line, um, A Kind of Faith, uh, uh, the, a kind of faith in the possibility a nickel has. And then later on in the poem, most people look in the wrong direction, locating faith above them. I went, yes, that's right. That's what I was, those were the words I wanted. And they came, they showed up that day. That's, uh, and I think that's nice. That's one of the things, I guess that in your poems of particulars, I think what happens is, is that you start stacking up the details, but between those details, something else emerges, that kind of visionary quality that we look for in good poetry. Mm -hmm. And when you stack up the details, and they're fun details, it's fun to find that kind of vision. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it was fun for me. My father that day had a choice. He could either pay his phone bill or buy a cigar. <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm my father's daughter. I'd have I don't smoke cigars, but I'd have done the same thing. And and lucky man, he found fifty dollars, um, so he got to pay his phone bill and have the cigar. Now, um, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about um, the memoir pieces. In the middle of the book, we do reach this kind of crescendo 
with poems like an argument about the argument between the husband and the wife and sealed universe and afternoon on the avenue i think that's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh talk uh, this sounds like a kind of these were written for you at emotionally fraught times mm-hmm. and i'm wondering when you're caught up in your emotions how much do you trust your language and then when you set it down and then when you go back and you're no longer caught up in your emotions how much do you trust again the language your the knowledge of language that's inherent in with you without the emotions versus the knowledge of language that set those emotions down in the words in the first place i always trust the language but which which version? I mean, which ver- well, I don't. For me, they're not really that different, actually, mm-hmm. because when I write the poem, might not be like the poem "Sealed Universe" is the is the story of a true story of a widow who um, eats a large amount of caviar, and and that poem was written probably thirty years after that event, or twenty five years after that event occurred. And wow. yeah, a long time <laughs> after it. But I could never get the vision of those shiny black beads of, of, of Russian caviar. I could never get them out of my mind. And um, so I think experience lodges itself inside of us intact and that we can return to it at any point. And that experience is intact. And if you, if you, if I sit down there and I open myself to it, I relive what happened totally in all these poems that are memoir, the poem um, uh, My Gordian Knot, the poem Pregnant, um, the ones that you mentioned. Um, I may not have, Afternoon on the Avenue was written shortly after the event of, of being yelled at by a very unkind person on Pacific Avenue, actually. Mm-hmm. That poem I wrote right away because I had to cleanse myself of the experience. And the way I did that was by diving into the experience. It was so such an awful experience. It, 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 it feels that way. But I think seeing it in language for us, one of the things that's nice is that not everything that happens in this book is, is pleasant. The argument is very unhappy. Yeah. Um, but seeing these things crystallized in language that is has enough brushed away unlike prose where you can have too too much mm-hmm. um language you can kind of chisel it down it's really the the sculpture it's um the david sculpture taken down to the skeleton yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so uh i'd like you to talk about um the idea of now, how much to remove when you're writing this down? Because you, the, your sentences and your your words never feel. Um, it feels very natural. It doesn't feel uh, sculpted, mm. but it's also very beautiful. And there's not there's nothing there that doesn't need to be there. Well, some of the reason there's nothing there that doesn't need to be there is because I had really good editorial <laughs> help. A number of, I mentioned Elliot Ruckowitz Roberts, um, Ellen Bass also worked with me on this manuscript, and um, Ken Weissner and um, George Lober all read this manuscript and, and, and gave me very serious critiques. So I thank them for their not being extra. Um, my friend Elliot says, what do you think? We didn't get it? We got it. You don't have to hit me over the head with the end of the poem. Okay, okay. Because sometimes I couldn't see. I didn't have the clarity to, to see what was overstated. And I'd rather ultimately understate than overstate. Um, I'd rather leave too much out because in the absence of the language, that's the place where the reader can step in and bring their own experience in. So if you make it so particular so laden with language, then you exclude the reader and they can't identify with with the poem. When I write, I always say to my writing students, write big, you can always you can always edit. So I write big. I write everything that I can possibly that comes to me in the moment of of the of the first draft, of the first couple of drafts. And then I start going uh, through what 
is necessary because in a poem, less is always more. There are, are poems here too, and we talked a little bit about this, that combine kind of memoir experiences with real visionary elements. And, and I'm thinking of uh, Losing Sleep and Garden Thieves, some of these poems like that. So I'd like you to talk about the decision that you make, or is it a decision that you make consciously when you write the poem, or is it a decision that happens on the level of pure language, or is it just a decision that happens in the experience? Say, for example, an argument is very straightforward memoir, and there's not a lot of fantastic in there. It's just the language is just sliced and diced to give us the essence of this kind of experience. Uh, Losing Sleep is maybe a similar poem, but it has a a little more visionary feel to it. So I'd like you to talk about when the visions creep in and when they don't. Well, you know, we all argue with our mates, or most of us do, at some point or another. And I remember that argument very distinctly with my most beloved husband, who I adore, uh, and we were coming home from the Bach Festival. And I don't remember, of course, what the argument was about because it wasn't the point. It was the argument. And I, um, it had, as I say in the poem, as arguments are wont to, it had a life of its own. But, you know, even it's sort of, I think the poet immerses herself in experience and at the same time, or maybe a moment after, she steps outside and she says, what's happening here? Let's look, huh, this is, this is, feels like, feels like hell, but this is really interesting. You know, this, oh, there could be a poem here. Um, the, the, the poet laureate, I believe she's the, the current poet laureate, has a new book out, Natasha Trethaway, and the book is called Thrall. Her first poem in that book is called Elegy. She writes about being in the river with her father fishing and in waders, and how she, even in that moment, as that was happening, she was looking for the poem in it. And she says, you know, I, something, something to the effect of, you know, I was that heartless. I, you know, <laughs> in the moment I was looking, you know, I knew that I'd be looking back. And it's, it's an incredible, it's a long and go- absolutely gorgeous poem. And I think that, you know, I kind of live my life that way. I don't, not kind of, I do live my life that way. I immerse myself in experience, but there's always a little part of me that's looking for what exactly is happening here and what's the greater significance. Because sometimes when life is hard, if you can attach a larger significance to the experience than is obvious, it helps to get through the experience, the hard things. And when things are beautiful, it's so obvious it's more than just the immediate because you're so enraptured in the beauty that you know I mean, it's how I know there's God. To me, what God is 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 nature and beyond nature. And when something beautiful happens, you you're 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 imbibed with it. It's 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 coursing through you. And and um, so it's the this, and then it's the more than this. It's interesting that you uh, say that because earlier on you described kind of I guess that all of us experience life essentially as a complete, endless video recording to a, to a degree, that everything we have and experience is recorded within us, mm-hmm. and we just have to kind of figure out a way to go back into those memory banks. And I think what the way, then when you talked about being a poet, most of us just have raw footage, but you have a director. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I do. I have a director. I have somebody in there saying, hmm, if you stood a little more to the left over here, it'd make a much better poem. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, one of the poems I thought is visionary, I I loved it, was Sing for Your Supper, and that's on page 42. And I'd like you to just read that because it's it's really beautiful. This poem, too, talking about how do I write a poem, this, which you asked earlier, this poem was written without any paper. I um, was up at a hot springs taking a hike, and I was far from my, my room, far from the lodge. And I, there's a meadow where birds sing. I think they're meadowlarks, and they sing like crazy. And I got the first line for the poem, first 
sentence, which is a question. And I said it over and over and over and over again to myself. And then I got the next line. And then I said all those over to myself until by the time I got back to my room where I had paper and pencil, all I did was write from memory what I had written as I was walking. Boy, that's really interesting. It was so cool. <laughs> it's only happened a couple of times that I've done that. It's really cool. A good reason not to bring paper. Sing for your supper. What if singing were how you earned your living? Each year, day by day, the sky above you is blue. Clouds billow like white dresses. They are yours, though you do not own them. Your voice flickers like a pinwheel of color. Old uncle has his tune, as do your sisters and cousins. Every answer has its question. Songs, little melodies are your job for which you never earn any money. You live in a house in a tree. Rarely do your feet touch the ground. Imagine. It's just, <laughs> it's perfect. And that's exactly why anybody in the world reads poetry and why everybody in the world should pick up this book and read it because it's really quite joyous. Um, one of the things I think that makes this book extraordinary is your uh, the story arc of the whole book of poems. So let's talk a little bit about putting that together. You've got poems you've written for over 13 years. Yeah, that's a lot of poetry. I, yep. I presume not everybody made it in here. Oh yeah, I want I, I wanted the best of my work. So first off, you have to winnow this down. Talk about that process, about figuring out which is best. Because I mean, there might have been some poems that didn't make it, but just because they didn't. Fit. They did, there were a number of poems that that didn't that I really wanted in this book. There's mm -hmm. a poem called My Duende which is about the, the duende, um, the dark side of the soul. I, and it's a long poem. It's one of my favorite things I've ever written. And once when I read it, Adrienne Rich gave me a compliment on the poem. So it made it even more favorite poem. Um, but it didn't fit in the book. It, it didn't fit. And so I, I kept in the various mutations of this book, kept putting poems by poems to find what What's the through line? Where's the arc? What's the story? How does what relates to what? And it really was over this last this last summer when I had time um, to to do that that I found the I found the through line. I found the arc um, with my Gordian knot being the, the as I said before the crescendo of that. And then it became obvious which ones couldn't couldn't live. They had to have they'll have a new house. They'll have their own house. It will come at another time. But this house could only hold these poems. And I also wanted the sections to be kind of even in length. So there are about ten poems per section. Um, and um, I wanted there to be a sense of balance in each section. So um, I really did look at a it as a poem. whole. Yeah, that's right. I wanted. The poems to be <laughs> with two e's to buzz. Well, one of the things I think that uh, is interesting is is the the way the feel of the language builds to that really intense middle section and then ebbs out slowly and beautifully. That's uh, a difficult thing to to find and discover. I would think in your own work, um, how, did you find that? Having the distance of having looking at poems that you'd written like maybe a few years ago, did that really help? I mean, because if you had just written, it seems to me some of these poems were written in fairly fraught emotional states. Mm -hmm. And that it'd be hard to even like almost read them again, let alone, okay, say, put them and say, okay, well, here's this one here and goes here. And uh, so talk about how your emotional state when you wrote the poem helped or hurt or how much that affected came back to you when you tried to put them in this book? Well, you know, what, what poems that I'd written a year or more ago, when I came to them, it was almost like looking at somebody else's poem. Oh, interesting. Right? Okay, you know? so you can you can get that. It only takes a year or so for you to get that Yeah, distance. I had a distance. on the, mm -hmm. the, the two last poems that came into this book are in the are in the final section, and, and one of them is called Cast Out, which is um, the last mother poem I think I'll ever have to write. Well, why don't you and, read that for us? Okay, so I didn't want that in the section 
where it really would have most obviously belonged, which was my Gordian knot, because it, there's resolution in this poem, and none of those other poems come to resolution. So it was, even though it was a really recent poem, because most of the manuscript was together, it was obvious that it had to fall toward the end of the book, where there is a sense of, of, of resolution, in, 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 of a sort, anyway. So this is called Cast Out. Through the coiled cord of the telephone, over a mere handful of separating miles came the stranger's voice. Your mother was found unconscious in her car. She's in a coma. Come quick. Setting the receiver back in its cradle, the synapses of my 29-year-old brain skidded before coming to a halt. Your mother, the stranger had said, with a delicacy I couldn't place. Mother, I tried emulating, but a tinny sound came out, just an ache. The one who, on an evening five years earlier before dinner was served, flicked her cigarette ash and harshly stated, I am not your mother. But you are, was my confused reply. Pushing me out with such finality, the door stitched itself shut so there was nothing to open, not a door, not a window, not the lid to a single eye. During our five lost years, time ground to a shuffle. Her voice, a once upon a time, though unsteady lullaby, left the occasional message. This is Peggy. I am not your mother. And then the line went dead. Until I stood in the too bright room of the flimsy curtains of the nine fragmented infinite days where, before the rasped and burbling death rattle began, before the shut door of her life and my bent over keening, she pulled herself from the coma, looked into my eyes and said kindly, you haven't been to dinner lately. How come? As though I were her daughter, my mother took me back. That's so beautiful. You know, and what it makes me think about is hearing the poems read aloud really makes a difference. I mean, yeah. it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big deal. And so I'd like you to talk about for you, um, as a writer, you write down the words. How much of this spoken aloud happens to you when you're, I mean, do you speak these aloud to oh, yourself? Oh, totally. Absolutely. I can't consider a poem done until I've I've read it aloud. And I... I look for the places where when I read it aloud, you know, it's sort of like the good internal critic comes forward and listens, sort of sits in the chair and picks his teeth and listens. And um, when I hear something that I may love, I hear um, what I call my internal poop detector, or I usually use a different word, but since this is radio, and I hear it and it goes, and I'll say, oh, but I love that phrase. And so, you you know, you really have to, it's the side of me that's trying to make the good poem, not just put the words down that I happen to love. And, and so, but this poem, interestingly enough, was also written primarily outdoors. I walk at Jack's Peak, and now I do carry pen and paper with me. And the, it was the second stanza of this poem, setting the receiver back in its cradle, the synapses of my 29-year-old brain skidded before coming to a halt. That whole stanza came to me while I was walking in the woods. And I wrote it down and went, oh, there's the poem. Oh, my God, I've been wanting to write this poem ever since my mother died. Here I am. That happened when I was 29. I'm 55 years old. It took all those years to be able to write the poem. And then I went home, and it took a few days to write this poem, to write the first draft of this poem. And, you know, when I came up with the line, um, pushing me out with such finality, the door stitched itself shut so there was nothing to open, I went, yes, that's 
it. That's it. So even in the despair of the story of the poem, I was in ecstasy because I found the language to say what was true. And I think there you have absolutely nailed the appeal of poetry. Yeah. Uh, right? With that statement that in the worst of the worst, the most dreadful things that can happen to us, poetry finds the language to say what is true in a way that is beautiful. And I think that that's why this collection is so good. But I think also, too, that you've done one other thing in that if a poem is made up of words and line breaks and sentences and phrases and punctuations, this collection is architected in poems in much the same way that a poem itself would be architected mm. out of line breaks. And the poem, the pacing of the poems, the length of the poems, themselves they become parts of a, of a larger meta-poem, and in fact the, the collection itself. The novel of the, of the no, poems. The novel of the poems, <laughs> yeah. and that's very much what this felt like to, for me to read, which was very satisfying. I really particularly enjoy novels, and, and that's mm. kind of how this felt to read in a very kind of fractured and surreal and, and lovely way. Thank you so much. Well, I think that, too, that's an accomplishment. Was that something you set out to do, or did, was that something you discovered? I um I set out to do that when I was ordering the book. I, I set out to, when I realized that there was a through line, I wanted to make sure that the structure of the book um, represented that through line, and represent that I, it was what well, it is a memoir. It is it is a there is a sense of resolution in the end, which is basically comes in the poem Land of Sorrow, where I say the years of sorrow being far as Jupiter may, um, may be gone from my life. And to, but sort of to make peace with the fact that, yeah, everything changes. It's the only constant. Everything changes. And um, so, yes, that w it, was, it became conscious as I was working on it. Well, we'll look for the change of your next poetry collection Sooner rather than later, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, it won't be so far away. <laughs> I've been speaking with Patrice Vecchiani. Her new collection of poetry and novel and poetry is <laughs> The Knot Untied. Thank you for joining me, Patrice. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>